that's something that's really un- misunderstood about domestic violence, physical violence, intimate partner violence. We call it violence and people think, oh, that's hitting, punching, kicking, raping. Uh, domestic abuse, domestic and family violence, as we call it where I live in Queensland, is a series of all sorts of controlling and manipulative behaviours. Sometimes people don't experience any physical or sexual abuse. They will only experience the coercive behaviours. So it's trying to control and dominate someone. It's limiting their access to finances. It's telling them what to wear. It's limiting their access to friends and family. It's often using children. It can be in the case of when it's happening where a man is perpetrating the violence against a woman. It can be using that male privilege, that man box, those sort of behaviours that we've been raised with in our society, that as a woman you're supposed to stay home, you're supposed to look after the kids, do the ironing, the washing, the cooking. Today, um, we're welcoming our guest, Tess Raby. She's all the way from Australia. Hi, Tess. Hi. Welcome. Thank you for being here. We greatly appreciate you coming um, and speaking with us. And in meeting Tess, um, I think we have a lot of a lot of key takeaways from today's meeting is navigating shame, getting navigating um, something that's incredibly uncomfortable and, and moving away from what is familiar for us that's comfortable that may not be necessarily in our best interests and just really hearing her journey in um, navigating her experience with domestic abuse and um, using the wisdom of that traumatic experience the wisdom of healing has gifted her to give back to the community and really you know use ripples put out ripples to really create awareness around what this is so we can invite more optimal pathways for people. So I can't thank you enough for being here today. And uh, we really look forward to you sharing your story. Maybe we can start with just giving us a quick, you know, introduction of yourself, more like from a life perspective, right? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Where'd you start? Where are you from? From a life perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. So I was born in Melbourne, which is a, a big city in Australia, in southern Australia, and I'm now living in Brisbane. Um, I had a pretty, pretty good upbringing. Great parents. A brother who was, you know, a bit annoying, like brothers are, but yeah, we're friends now. So. A brother who's annoying. Never heard of that. Yeah. <laughs> heard of the job title. <laughs> yeah, right. I had really. My parents have had a really really loving relationship and they're still they're still both alive they live around the corner they're in their 70s and they still hold hands when they walk on the beach and um cuddle on the couch so i i grew up surrounded by love the love of my parents my brother my grandparents life took me on a bit of a journey i guess i uh met my ex-husband when i was quite young so i was about 21 when i met him and fell in love with him uh, he lived in Papua New Guinea for a while and I was living in Australia. It was pretty hard to do that long-distance relationship. We ended up getting married in Melbourne and then moving to the UK for a couple of years where our eldest daughter was born. Uh, from there we moved back to Australia where our youngest daughter was born. We then moved to Dubai, so we lived in Dubai. Oh, wow. Um, and then ended up coming back to Australia, back to Brisbane. So I live in Brisbane, which is um, about halfway up, if you think of the map of Australia. So getting up to the hot bit. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, so my relationship with my ex-husband was tumultuous from the beginning, I think. 
Um, and I ended up realising many, many years later, we were married for about 15 years, that what I was actually experiencing was domestic abuse or domestic violence. It's tricky. When you're young and all you've experienced is love and respect and beautiful relationships around you, that's what you just expect the world to be, right? Mm-hmm. You just walk into the world trusting that everything's going to be great. I, I was very privileged. My parents had enough money. I was well-educated. I lived in a nice house, all of that sort of thing. So I just thought that that's the way the world was. Um, what happened with my relationship with him was that it was very disrespectful very early on and very controlling, but the way he sold that control to me was love. So I love you so much. What's so next, yeah. I don't, I don't want you to go out with other people. Like I don't want you to go out for drinks after work because I want to spend all my time with you. Um, and I actually misunderstood the control that comes with domestic abuse and saw it as love. He was just But you're so young much. too, right? This yeah, was like your relationship. first major relationship probably, right? Like, yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So that's, um, I think that's one of the things that is common to yeah. people's stories of domestic abuse is that the control in the early days is sold as, it, it's jealousy, right? But it's sold as love. You're so mm-hmm. beautiful that I wouldn't want. I I wouldn't want. You'll you wear to. those clothing. You, you you're too yeah. attractive in it. That kind yeah. of it came down yeah. to when we go out for dinner. I had to face the wall in a restaurant yep. because I was so beautiful that you know I didn't. I, it wasn't a good idea for my face to be out there for other people. So so, so Tess, um, is this mm-hmm. like a behavior that um, you noticed after you you um, you got married, or was it something you noticed before you got married? This it actually started early. Yeah, unfortunately, it happened before I got married, um, and it is interesting. I'm I'm still friends with the people that I worked with when I met him, and that's twenty what twenty five, twenty eight years of friendship there, and they now say that they wondered what was wrong with him. They didn't like the way that he treated me. They didn't like the way that he behaved towards me. But nobody ever said anything. No one said anything. No. Yeah. Nobody knew. Nobody knew what it was. I guess they're very uncomfortable conversations to have with people, and that's why my life has taken me down this path where I now teach people how to have those conversations. How do you bring this up with someone? How do you support someone through this? Um, and it's it's that relationship with him, um, which was horrendous. And I was married to him for about fifteen years. So it was a long time to go through that, but I have chosen now to see it as a gift. One of the things that I'm always curious about is why is it that when we, and I've been through similar experiences where I didn't catch signs early enough on so many things, forget about relationships, but, um, and we're intelligent people and all this stuff. Um, that we didn't catch signs, but was there anything since you've had this this wonderful experience with your parents and your upbringing and your family, was there a part of you initially that sort of looked at it and thought, hmm, that's different, or I didn't see my parents do this? Absolutely. Absolutely. There were all sorts of signs that I even spoke to him about, but he convinced me that the reason he was behaving like that was because he loved me. There was all sorts of really jealous, really obsessive behaviours that were going on. 
Um, he was limiting my contact with friends and family from a very, very early stage and mm-hmm. controlling where I went. This is before mobile phones. Of course, it got worse once we got that kind of technology. Yeah, did you know, the escalation happened after the marriage. That seems to um, be a theme for a lot of people. The, the escalation, yeah, it was a big change when we had our first baby. Yeah, but babies, yeah. There was this like acts of sexual assault before we were married. In the relationship so there was stuff going on that i was so uncomfortable with and and really upset by at times i would i'd cry and um, i yeah. talked to friends about some of it um and some of it was very intimate what what he'd done to me um yeah and they said you know oh that doesn't sound nice that sounds awful um and then they kind of left it so and i think was your experience that people i think sometimes people don't realize that you can be sexually assaulted when you're in a relationship with someone. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, did you um, find that there was kind of that disconnect in people's reaction? Because if you were sexually assaulted by someone who was a stranger to you, for example, or maybe not someone you're in a relationship with, I feel like yeah. that's received differently by people. Absolutely. And I run now domestic and family violence specialist workplace training and bystander programs and all sorts of things in my professional life. And one of the things I say to people is really it's incredibly unlikely that there is a domestically abusive relationship that doesn't contain some element of sexual assault. Because when you think about it, if somebody has that much power and control over you and you're frightened of them, are you going to say no? You can't say no. Or it's not worth the fight, right? Exactly. Or for, yeah. It's a very, very common. A form and it's of coercion, yeah. Yeah, it's a really awkward conversation and people find it really hard to talk about. And I didn't talk about it for years, but I have had to step into my discomfort about what happened to me in order to educate other people because I do not want other people to think that this is okay or normal. I have two daughters. I do not mm-hmm. want them to ever think that they have to have sex with someone just because they're in a relationship with them or just because they're married to them. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is really, really uncomfortable for me to have those conversations and I, it's a, it's something I've worked through for a long time to be able to actually articulate it. You know. Yeah. And you- I love what you said there, the stepping into discomfort, because that's something I say a lot in my work as well, is if you healing and the wisdom of healing comes from sitting with the discomfort, yeah. and learning how to swim in it, right? Yeah. And so when when did you first see yourself, I guess at what point was the point that you started to look at, I needed to step into my discomfort? Like when when was that? Because that's a, that's a hard place to get to. Yeah. What, I'm, what I'm wondering is um, even before that was, you know, where there, where there's in, in situations like this, uh, I, would, I would think, I'm guessing, and I'd, I'd love for you to share, is it more than one type of abuse as well? Is it is it something other than physical? Are there other ways in which you know uh, abuse takes place? And is that is that something you also noticed as well? Absolutely, and yeah, I'm really pleased that you brought that up, Muhammad, because that's something that's really un- misunderstood about domestic violence, physical violence, intimate partner violence. We call it violence, and people think, oh, that's hitting, punching, kicking, raping. Uh, domestic abuse, domestic and family violence, as we call it where I live in Queensland, 
is a series of all sorts of controlling and manipulative behaviours. Sometimes people don't experience any physical or sexual abuse. They will only experience the coercive behaviours. So it's trying to control and dominate someone. It's limiting their access to finances. It's telling them what to wear. It's limiting their access to friends and family. It's often using children. It can be Mm -hmm. in the case of when it's happening where a man is perpetrating the violence against a woman, it can be using that male privilege, that man box, those sort of behaviours that we've been raised with in our society, that as a woman you're supposed to stay home, you're supposed to look after the kids, do the ironing, the washing, the cooking. Those sort of things are used as well. So it's a huge spectrum of behaviours. But I think the important thing for people to realise is it's a passion of behaviour. It's not a one-off. We all have arguments with our partners. We all have arguments with our kids and our parents. It's not one argument. And it's not if you have an argument or a disagreement with someone and it's resolved respectfully. It's a pattern of behaviours and they cause fear. So there'll be a power imbalance in the relationship and there'll be the presence of fear. And that's a really important differentiation from perhaps what's even an unhealthy relationship. Yeah, It's it's that fear. Was it constantly, you know, was it constantly bad? Were there, or were there moments where you're like, oh, look at that. He's actually a, a loving, an actually loving, caring person because there would be the, I don't know, say flowers or whatever else, sweet gestures that would, that you could use maybe even as evidence to yourself to say, nah, you know, there is a side to him. Or if you were to flip it, her, whoever, the partner, uh, or the other side of that relationship to say, look, those are good qualities and I see goodness there and let's focus in on that. Or was it constantly terrible? Or like, what was the mix like? Like, did you see yeah. other um, char- characteristics? Again, you've raised a really good point. So it tends to follow some kind of cycle, right? There tends to be this feeling of there's something in the air, something's not right, the tension builds, you're walking on eggshells, you know that, something just doesn't feel right then there's an explosion that can be going for weeks for days for hours or it might be a one-off throwing something yelling something like that then there's this kind of phase where it's either either remorse where they realize they've done the wrong thing these people and then they give gifts and things like that or it's that victim blaming so it's that Mm, i would never done that had have had the kids bathed on time that kind of thing that you know, shifting the blame onto the victim. And then what happens, Mohammed, is often at, after that is the time when someone decides that they want to leave. They recognise that the behaviours are terrible, they might recognise that they are domestic abuse and they decide to leave. At that point, that person comes back in and sometimes will offer to go to counselling, will buy gifts, you might go on a family holiday. In my case, I remember I would think, oh, he let me buy shoes or he let, let me... me- underwear let me (laughs) i know i know it's it's like a win it's like oh i got a jacket (laughs) yeah it's like oh my god (laughs) and then of course i think there's something really important that's really misunderstood about this is that people will say why didn't you leave yeah did you put up with it for that time well part of it is because of that cycle i just explained part of it is because exactly what you said muhammad is not bad every single day of your life but the other piece that's missing is love i loved him i fell in love with him 
I had his children. We got married. To me, marriage is forever. Marriage is a commitment that you make to someone to never, ever, ever go away from them or break up with them because my grandparents had stayed married. My parents, like, I didn't think I'd ever be on the side of divorce. So that love piece, though, is so important because then what often happens is they will use all sorts of sort of coercive tactics to keep you in the relationship. In my relationship, he threatened to kill himself if I left. I'm not sure what the statistics are there. I haven't looked at the coroner's reports here in Ontario, the province where we're calling you from, but there's a very high, I want to say it was, I want to say it was 63 or 69. I can't get the percentile right, but of the domestic homicides in our province, 63 or 69% of them, I think this was the statistics from 2019. And that there was such a high ratio of correlation between domestic homicide and suicide and separation and divorce. Yeah. And so I think that is such an important thing because even though he's saying that and he might not have may or may not have taken actionable steps toward it when they are in that place or you're in that place of wanting to experience to leave, that's where there's a, a, an increased risk of violence oh, for himself or the other, right? It's such yeah. so, even though it's a control tactic to keep you there, it's also a very real threat. It is. It's, it's in Australia, it's the same. The highest risk time is the point of separation and the couple of months following that. And yeah. the, the violence escalates because the person perpetrating the violence is losing control. Domestic abuse is all about power and control. That's the whole mm-hmm. thing of it. So with me, the violence and abuse was uh, skyrocketed post-separation. In fact, there were many times that I would thought it would just be easier to go back to him, but my, right. family, my family stopped me. If I hadn't had that family support around, I would have gone back. It was so yeah. much harder than I could have imagined. But I'm lucky. I'm sitting here. Yeah. Every, every week in Australia, women are losing their lives and it's, it's global, you know, and they're not getting through that. They don't have the support and protection. So it is really yeah. important if people are thinking about leaving a relationship that they put in a safety plan, that they have some sort of safety plan, plan in place that they've worked. Yeah. And contingencies to the contingency, right? Yeah. Well, that's just it. Like, it, especially now, you know, that you bring up that stat and you think about it. Um, that's almost like um, an anchor, like knowing that, oh, my gosh, if I go in that direction, it the possibility of it getting worse, right, uh, as from a, from a danger point of view itself can scare somebody into just staying in that, in that situation, knowing that that's an actual stat now. Um, so, you know, over to you, yeah. Tess, before that separation time, did you um, – and I'm really just trying to get myself into your shoes there when you were then and there. Um, you know, so so you say uh, you recall that it wasn't always, you know, and just because that there are moments where there are, you know, butterflies and, you know, rainbows and and laughter, um, you know, how how is it that you go from, you know, because I imagine, I wonder if, if, you, if you experienced this yourself and you started imagining to yourself well if i just did these things you know uh and did you start to analyze going hey this is what led to like the happy moments so let's do more of that kind of stuff and and try to problem solve your way through it 
especially since marriage to you was was an institution that you really wanted to keep, you know, intact, right? And culturally, it's out there, you know, you, till death do us part. Like, you know, like there's so many lines and so many things we learn about, you know, de- like marriage and, and, and that's one relationship, only one type of relationship in which there is abuse. It's not the only type of relationship no, there's abuse in, which we'll talk about as well. But <clears throat> you, the one we hear about the most is the one in, in marriages. But, uh, and in your case, this is what you found, but did you, did you start problem solving and sort of saying to yourself, hey, if I did this differently, I could change outcomes? And what were those things that you were thinking about? I'm just curious. Oh, absolutely. I spent most of my life walking on eggshells is the term we use. I'm sure you've heard it. Um, So I spent most of my time thinking about how to please him and how to calm the kids down and how to make everything happy in the house. So I would like wash the floors obsessively like three or four times a week. I would try and have dinner on the table when he came home. I'd always try and have the food that he wanted. I, the kids um, from the age, and actually one of one of his friends saw this when we were in Canada, ironically, and our little one was two. And we were in a massive hotel room and there was myself, my ex-husband and my two daughters and this friend, mate of ours, that was in the room as well. And he was so shocked at the way my two-year-old behaved when her father was asleep. She knew by the age of two that she was not to make any noise and she was to creep around and not behave like a normal toddler, a normal two-year-old, right? So the kids were starting to self-regulate from a really young age as well when they were around him because mm-hmm. they didn't want an explosion. So I can't pin down particular thought processes. It was like that was my life, my yeah. whole life. He he was a pilot, so... Well, it's, it's kind, of, kind of like constantly filtering everything you're doing looking for is this going to set them off is this going to set them off and trying to like mitigate potentialities for things to blow up that you know he might be activating him or triggering him it's just I think that's probably like like I don't know like that's what eggs it's like a level of hyper vigilance to control everything around you so you can control the uncontrollable chaos that's going to come down you if you can't control to make everything perfect it's just it's ex- it's absolutely exhausting and it's, it's you know constantly running. like obviously you'd never been through this before you'd never seen it being done before or experienced it so the first times that, that you're starting to experience this um I wonder if sometimes, again, as a problem solver, as a people pleaser, you know, like those kind of personalities that we we often hear being on the other side of that, Mm -hmm. right, Uh, of of that abuse, sort of say and take ownership of the situation or or sometimes kind of like dismiss it in a way and say, ah, that's just his personality. Okay, Mm -hmm. so I'm just going to have to get used to it. And look, if I can do these things, everything's going to be fine. Yeah. Yeah, with my situation, like for most of our relationship, he was away for periods. So I think I told you at the beginning he he worked in New Guinea. So I would be in Melbourne. It would be like really stressful when he was around. But, you know, we loved each other and it wasn't all bad. Like we'd go out for dinner and do nice things together and he made me laugh and, you know, we had friends around. It was There was good times. And then when we got married and had the kids and everything, he was a pilot, so he was away a lot of the time. So the girls and I actually ended up kind of living two separate lives. So we would be much more relaxed and have much more fun when he wasn't there because when he was there, not that he was nasty all the time, but 
it was this constant of what might set him off, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and the girls were noticeably different when he was home. Did you um, <clears throat> did you ever say to yourself, um, "Look, he's under a lot of stress, oh, yeah. and he's got all these things to deal with," and almost sort of like start defending, you know, the behavior, going even if it's unacceptable. You know, we start looking at it going, well, let me try to be empathetic. You know, we hear these words nowadays, you know, like, let's let's be compassionate for what might even be the oppressor. Right. Um, and sort of say, like, what is that person going through? And, um, you know, sort of that did, did you have those feelings as well to sort of, you know, uh, keep you going on or try to get you to empathize and and and, and you know, find your balance in that? Absolutely. I think I was trying to save him, to be honest. I am a people pleaser. I'm a really caring and empathetic person and I really want to do good in the world. That's something that has always been been part of me. I've always wanted to help people. He came from a very abusive background. His mother was really abusive, very, very coercive and controlling to him and I saw her do it to his dad as well. His dad um, would actually take me out down to the grocery store and buy me treats because he knew what it was like to be on the receiving end of control and he knew that his son was not nice to me. Um, yeah, so he grew up in abuse, right, and I wanted to help him through that and I saw him as a victim. Mm, but what I've realised is. is that it doesn't matter if you're a victim, you have choices and this is a choice. Yeah. It is your choice to behave like that. You can choose a path of going forward in your life, of making changes, of seeking help, of all of those type of things, or you can do what he did, which is to repeat the cycle and we would go to a counsellor. I would say, this is it, I can't do it anymore. We'd go to a counsellor, we'd go for two or three sessions, they'd start to talk about his childhood and all of a sudden it was the worst counsellor in the world, we could never go back. That was his choice. But I definitely yeah. saw myself as, like, in some way trying to save him. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's it's rooted in love, right? And it's the father of your children. And what a, like, you know, Trina, even we were saying, like, what a win this would be if you could turn this around. And you don't, you're not, you're not one to quit on something. You know, you're not one to give up. So sometimes these are the very things that drive us to, to remain engaged and, uh, and to, and to, be resilient, right? And uh, to, to, to honor, you know, the institution of marriage and all of these things, I think like, it's not maybe one thing, it's a combination of all of these things on different days. Um, so, um, so thank you for kind of like talking about that. But, you know, I guess now the next thing that I'm wondering about is, and, you know, Trina, you were starting to say this earlier was that, you know, at, at what point in time did it start occurring to you then that, okay, um, you know, you know, where do you start like crossing over that line? There's a lot of gray area days, right? Like it's not so black and white, I imagine, right? It, it doesn't just go one day, okay, this was the day I remember, or was it like that? Um, I just, can I just put notice before she goes in? She said something really important before you asked that question, which was um, that she recognized that he was the victim, that was a victim too. And I think that's something that happens a lot for abusers no matter what form of abuse they participate in that there's this hard wiring there from their childhood experiences that has created either a traumatic 
a trauma for them or a distressing and disturbing event that was such a pivotal experience that left this the, this lens of how they operate and see the world. And I think one of the most important lessons I know for myself and then a lot of people I work with, and you probably see this for yourself, Tess, with women you've worked with and for yourself, is that no amount of love is going to help someone reach their potential. And you can't heal someone else. You can only stand by them. And we can only do our own healing. And I think that's one of the most difficult realizations to come to because when you come to that moment that you can't love this person into a healthy relationship, that like it's it's such an overwhelming reality to come to. That is not a small detail because then you're starting to, to conceptualize are they going to meet the potential? And that's the thing is everyone has such beautiful potential, but not we don't always all meet our potential. No, but I think the other thing that I didn't realize back then is that you shouldn't love someone and want to change them. Right. Right? If yep. you love someone, you should love them. I was hoping you would go exactly. Exactly. I, 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 heard, I heard an interesting <laughs> Uh, go ahead, finish your thought. But I heard an interesting saying about men and women and when they get into marriages. And it was one of those kind of like satirical, comical kind of sayings that said something to the effect of, you know, uh, a, a woman marries a man seeing his potential of what he can be and, and wants him to change, but he never does. <laughs> a man marries a woman wanting her to stay exactly the way she is and she changes. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's interesting the change that are seen from the two different perspectives. Mm -hmm. um, but you, 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 you said something really interesting about not changing people and realizing that, you know, um, and then there, there's even, even that element, right, that you mm -hmm. think about going, when you then reflect on that a little further, when you're actually in that situation, I wonder when you said that finally, or you thought that you're like, yeah, I'm not here to change them. And then it was then a question of saying, do you accept this circumstance as the, the permanent way? Or is that is that kind of like how it went? Yeah, yeah. I think the thing is like we, with the change thing, we all change. Yeah. We grow and we change. But we should be growing and changing alongside each other. We shouldn't actually be wanting someone to change, I think, because, yeah, it's important to sort of differentiate that point. Yeah. In terms Evolving, of, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And we should be supporting each other through that, right? But yeah. in terms of, um, like, when I noticed things were were actually really, really bad, it was there was lots of moments in my life where I felt like it wasn't fair and it wasn't right. I would see men in the supermarket. This sounds ridiculous. So I'd see men in the grocery store with their carts, with their kids in the cart, like, yeah playing games with their kids, throwing them an apple, whatever it was, and I would feel so desperately sad. Yeah. So desperately sad that my daughters did not have that and that he didn't have that either. Um, he would take them out occasionally for a milkshake or something like that. It was all part of that cycle, um, showing me all the great stuff that he could do. But generally he would not take them anywhere. He wouldn't engage with them. He didn't take them to their sports classes or ballet classes or anything like that. So so there was this sadness, I guess, and they got more and more as the kids got older. But there was actually a pivotal moment that I can still remember. I can still see the road. I can still see the bus. 
I was driving past a school on a local road and there, there was a bus pulled out in front of me. How, how old were you at this point? Cool. 35. Okay. <laughs> right? I was wondering if my math was the same as yours. Yeah. <laughs> I'm 50 right. now. I just turned 50. Um, yeah, so I was 35 approximately and this bus pulled out in front of me and it had a picture on the back of the bus and it was a woman holding a purse or a wallet and she looked so, so sad and drawn and it was actually an ad for financial abuse, for domestic violence. Mm. And this is, you've got to think back, this is 12, 13, 14 years ago. We were a billboard. Stuff. <laughs> yeah, it was like a really new concept for people. And it mm. was that moment that I thought, oh, my goodness, this I am experiencing domestic violence. It, it, and, and that's the power of education campaigns, right? So now throughout the entire Western world we have all of these education campaigns and we're teaching people what this is because it's all of these different things like Muhammad was saying before. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, there was a pivotal moment when I realised that it was domestic violence and not just an unhealthy, yucky relationship. So that was your aha moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Were you? Did you say earlier that there were others who were who were beside you while you were going through this or who were watching and observing, say, bystanders, right, let's call them that, um, who if you were to talk to them and say, you know, ask them what they thought, what was going on, and they'd be like, yeah, she was definitely, we tried to tell her. Did you get any other signals from anywhere else other than what you saw yourself? Unfortunately, there are lots of people now that say, oh, yeah, we didn't like the way he did that to you. We didn't like the way we treat he treated you. Um, even friends of my parents, like my parents will come back and say, oh, you know, Jono in the corner over there said that he never liked the way that that guy treated you or the way he behaved. But no one said anything at the time. No one says anything. No. I mean, and my next, like some of my close friends, like my next door neighbour I was really, really close with, she saw a lot of stuff. She would see me sobbing and crying. She would take the kids into her house. I've got another friend who I turned up in the middle of the night, a kid on each hip, all of this in our pyjamas. I was, you know, sobbing my heart out. It was so awful. None of those people stood by to support me, none of them. Yeah. Like it was only my family and my oldest friends. Those people that had seen that stuff just ran and hid and I still, they still don't talk to them to this day. They still don't talk to me. There's so much shame, I think, and it's so uncomfortable for bystanders because they thought he was a nice guy. Even though what do, mean, what do you mean by shame? What do you mean? Like who? Well, I think they ashamed? They're, they're ashamed or you're ashamed? They were ashamed to be have anything to do with me because I was a victim of domestic violence. That's the only way I can kind of work it out in my head because why would you do that? And particularly, I know this is really gendered and sexist, but particularly as a woman, to do that to another woman, to leave her for dead, when she's escaping a relationship, that you've seen plenty of signs there that mm. there's something not right in that relationship. But I think people are so embarrassed. They don't know what to do. They well, don't know what to say. Know, they um, don't know what to believe. I mean, and this you know, is not to justify, and I, just to just not to play the devil's advocate on that, but, like, you know, looking at their point of view going, hey, look, that's none of my business. You know, somebody saying even to the person who wants to tell you something, they might be first. they might first say to somebody else, and then that person going, listen, don't go poking your nose in Tessa's life. You know, 
I wouldn't want people poking their noses in our lives, telling us whether we should be together or not or what. I could just see that kind of being a conversation because it is awkward to them. They want to tell you, but is it shame or fear? I don't know what the right word is, but, um, you know, uh, they could be sitting there thinking they misread the situation or they're being nosy. Sometimes they've maybe even tried to tell somebody this and they're told, mind your own business, okay? You don't know what he's like or what he's going through. And, and sometimes you get that response from the very, very person who's going through it because you caught him at a different time. Mm. It's awkward, but you always have to say something. Yeah, it's, and I think it's really important yeah. to check in with people. Like, I think that's the thing. It's it's a level of discomfort you have to step through as a bystander, right? Oh, I don't really want to have this conversation, but you just need to do something and say something, anything. Yeah. And I know, and speaking to like what, like some of the points that Muhammad was pointing to in this question there, I know um, in work where I'll like, I'll run teen girl groups, for example, and we do it for a series of anywhere from eight to 12 weeks. And there's a lot of conversation over the course of that time around self-worth, self-value, coercive power and control dynamics. What does this look like? What is what a boundary? What are boundaries? What are boundary breaches? What does disrespect look like? What does control look like? What does um, appreciation look like? What does kindness truly look like? What does caring actually look like? And and I think this is I know for me, I wish we had more of that for our young people, because mm if they are aware of the sign, if you know better, we always do better <laughs> in theory. Right. And so knowledge is power. And if you're, if I've, I've seen this shift, even with young girls, like, cause after you do this for a couple of years, they'll come back to you cause you're in the same um, facility as them. And they'll be like, Oh, miss, miss, I saw this. And we saw this with this guy or this girl and we called it out. And it's just helping people, identify and put words to something that is usually not always palpable, right? Like they might not have always seen him actually disrespect you. It might be just an energy where you're, you change when they come in the room and there's just this palpable shift mm -hmm. in your behavior. Like you've noticed with your daughters, that adaptive response, right? And, and I think that's a big piece of where we need to for not just to, not just domestic abuse, but for suicidality, for anxiety, like and everything yeah. is just learning how to have compassionate conversations through curiosity. Yeah. Right. And and sometimes with with people who are going through domestic abuse or I've, I've seen this even in teenage relationships all the way to adult relationships. And it's the friends that are like, are you okay? I'm just checking in. And it might be a year down the road. It might be six years down the road. But the friend that checks in is the friend that, that they go to down the road to kind of get that support because they there's that connection, even though um, even though it's not always able to be nurtured because of controlling circumstances, right? So I don't it's know, like, what are your thoughts, like, and, and on your work you're doing with, like, early education and intervention? Like, what what's happening there with that? That's so true. And I think you've hit the nail on the head, as we say, <laughs> um, really, because it comes down to, I do think that the culture and society is going to shift. There's so much work being done. Like I see 
it across Europe, the UK, the States, Canada, Australia. There's so much work being done with young people now to teach them about consent, about respectful relationships, about these bystander interventions. I'm hitting people pretty late. And, you know, it's interesting. It's kind of in some ways it makes me mad that those people didn't step in now. But I also do understand it because I wasn't, I didn't even know what it was. So how how were they supposed to know what it was? Do you know what I mean? And I have to have some people for them. But it's so important that we do this education piece generationally. Yeah, generation. Because it can change the way you parent, right? You can. Yeah. I know the way I've parented has changed as I've changed, right? Yeah. And and you correct things in your parenting. You're like, oh snap, I got that wrong. <laughs> Let's even, go even back. Tess, even Tess was saying herself, like you look going back to her childhood and her upbringing. You know, um, you had never seen anything like right. this So, um, you know, it's interesting that you would you would think that if you'd never seen this, when you see it, you're like, no, uh, this doesn't. This is not how it's supposed to be. But there are all these different ways in which, uh, like, it's not a static environment. You're also being persuaded that it is okay. You know, just you already kind of know your, to yourself that it's not. And and that's kind of also what I wanted to. You, you talked about shame and the feeling of shame. Was it? Did you have any such feelings yourself that like, you know, this is my fault um, or shame on me if why would you why would you feel shame you're you're the one being you know you're the one having to go through this I, I want to understand that well I felt so stupid how did I possibly get myself into that position I was so embarrassed I, mm-hmm. I was, I'm a well-educated privileged woman right as I said I grew up in privilege I grew up surrounded by love, kindness, nice things, we had enough money, all of that sort of stuff. How does a person that's that well-educated and that got that nice support network around them with family and friends get themselves into that situation? It was like, it was embarrassing, really embarrassing. That's another anchor. And that's another anchor that just keeps you there for being able to do something about it. You know, Trina, you also... Yeah, and, and Trina brought up an interesting point here as well about like self-worth. So, you, you know, you start from a point where you know who you are. You're an educated person. You know, you know what's what. Uh, you're intelligent. Then you find yourself here in this predicament. And it doesn't just happen in relationship. It happens in business, for example. Like, how did I let it get to this? And then there is coming to terms with like now, then, then, then there there's this question that we I know I've had to ask myself sometimes and it's happened in business for example with me but it happens everywhere I notice that you're like oh my god I don't know what I'm doing and so your your level of self whatever you want to call it worth just drops and you're at this very weak vulnerable point where even though you realize now I'm in the call it in the wrong or I'm off center you don't even know whether you have the knowledge or the resources of what it takes to get back to, to center. Did you have that feeling of like, I don't want to use the word despair, but like, don't know what to do now. What do I do? Yeah. I, I was a shell of my former self. And it is interesting because um, one of my best friends, my closest friends, is a man that I met when I was 20 and they were my next-door neighbours, he and his wife, and we are very, very good friends to this day, very close friends. He talks about getting tests back. 
Mm. He's seen me from before I met my ex-husband right through the whole journey. And at times in our lives we weren't like that connected that regularly, do you know what I mean? But he's always been there on the sidelines. And he he says he just saw me just wither away into this shell of myself. And he has been one of my biggest, biggest supporters to help get Tess back. I'm talking about I'm sitting on the floor in the bathroom at 3 o'clock in the morning, scared, locked in the bathroom, and he's the one I call that kind of support. Yeah. Like he's literally just not left my side the whole time. And he definitely saw me come back from that broken person. I One of the things, one of the stories I sometimes share with people, it, it kind of sounds a little bit crazy, but when we finally separated properly, the house was sold, I went and bought myself a, a really little house. And when I moved in, the dishwasher was broken. And I went to the local store to buy myself a new dishwasher. And I stood in this store and I was 100% convinced that there was no way I could choose a dishwasher. I would choose the wrong dishwasher. It would be the wrong brand. It would break. It would be the wrong colour. It wouldn't fit in the hold, you know, that I'd measured up. I was just so anxious about making that decision to buy a dishwasher. When I eventually I had to decide, right, so <laughs> I decided on what dishwasher I was going to buy and bought it and this sounds ridiculous to me now but I remember feeling so proud of myself yes yes because all of my autonomy all of my decision making had been taken away from me because I was told that I was stupid I was dumb I was never good enough nothing I could do was good enough I couldn't iron his shirts well enough I would wash the dishes and be told I had too much water coming out of the tap I would turn the lights on wrong. I would have the air conditioning set wrong. Everything I did was wrong. You can't do anything right. No. So so this is like, (laughs) and and this is the my favorite part now because, you know, you just talked about where you were when you bought that dishwasher. I want to. I I love that as a as a marker now. I love that. (laughs) That that's a great marker. Thanks for sharing that. And then you also shared how you were, you know, crouched in your bathroom at three a.m like these two points. Now, at that moment, um, what did you then start to do? That's what, like, where did you start finding your power? Yeah, start going into the discomfort <laughs> to get yeah, out. Where, what was, try to recall for me if you can, like this is like the, the golden stuff here is like, you know, there you were feeling worthless, completely like unimpacted, like no power whatsoever. You've probably lost contact. You have no resources. You don't know who to call. Would, where did you start finding your power from? I think I think a lot of it was my girls. I just realised that I had to pull myself together for those girls. They had no one. They didn't want to see their dad. Once we separated, well, they weren't very close to him before anyway, um, but once we separated and he started, like, perpetrating even more and more acts of, like, verbal abuse and threats of physical violence and all the rest of it in front of them and did some horrible things to them as well. They just wanted nothing to do with him. And he, of course, wanted full custody with me to have no access to the children at all. Um, mm-hmm. So I This all happened after. Well, this when is when you were there. Yeah. yeah, but right at that moment, is that, I'm just going to go back to that. Is that what you thought? Like, I got to do this for them? So you kind of, you, you kind of like, 
you didn't even focus on yourself even at that point no. like you were focusing on the girls still and and you were doing it for them is that is that was what you would say in your case was your was where you, you, you like the mother instinct like is that what you tapped into absolutely the leverage right absolutely. the leverage to do well by them because mm -hmm. you had more to do well by them than you did for yourself that's the word trina i'm trying to see like where she found her leverage exactly yeah. Yeah. so where was your like that was your leverage yeah, my oldest daughter, when I left, my oldest daughter was 12. Um, she'd started to go through puberty and he had, he was horrible to her um, to the point where he didn't believe that period pain existed. He didn't believe that she should be able to use cream for her, her pimples or acne on her face. Um, I was having to hide painkillers in a school bag where I knew I wouldn't find them because he didn't want her to take any painkillers. So he was starting to perpetrate abuse. I didn't know the word for it then, but he was starting to perpetrate more and more acts of abuse and violence on her. And I just realised that I could not let her grow up in that environment. I shouldn't have had to be so protective over her. And I also realised that I didn't want my girls to think that that was what love was. Yeah, because it's not. And so when, that's when the you, model now. And so when you started to do this, um, was there a, a change you noticed in yourself? Um, like, oh, I feel strong all of a sudden. Like, you know, like when, when someone goes to the gym, for example, and I, I can only, like, because I can't relate directly, I'm trying to understand yeah. from a completely outside point of view to this is like, sometimes you do something, you're like, that felt good. Yes, more. Uh, like, or is, is that how the feeling went for you? No. <laughs> okay. Good. No. I'll, I'll understand. It, like, it actually gets scarier and scarier and scarier and scarier <laughs> and then feels good years later. <laughs> Trina's okay. right. So then where do you get your validation? Where do you get your confirmation that you're heading in the right direction? That's what I'm wondering. Um, from my, from my friends, Andrew, I'll name him, uh, Andrew. Yeah. Um, was like my rock and my parents. Like they were really the three people that kept me on track and stopped me from going back. It was yeah. horrible. It was so yeah. awful. There were so many times when I thought I would have been better off going back into that than what happened afterwards. It was it was them. I mean, I've got to be honest, I was not strong enough to resist the, the comfort in that horrible situation because yeah. I knew the situation. I knew I could control the situation. I knew that if I did certain things and behaved in certain ways, it yeah. wouldn't be too bad. It wouldn't be that awful. Yeah. <laughs> so it really, I'm very, very grateful to them for pulling me through it and supporting me through it. I know I had to do it myself and I know everyone says you were so strong and, yeah, I was strong, but when I left, um, it was definitely it was a boundary setting exercise. <laughs> if you want, to, okay, if you want to say it like that, it was. And was it, it was it something gradual, or did you just have to say like cut it right here? It was How did you do it? it was exhausting because it was putting up really the boundary after boundary after boundary, and the same boundary had to be reiterated multiple times. It was. Are learning. you able to share like some like when you say boundary? Help me understand. Like you're not allowed to text message me 150 times a day anymore. You're not allowed to email me 200 times a day anymore. No, you can't just show up at the house and demand to see the children. This is not how this works. Mm -hmm. 
Um, no, you know, I ended up having to get domestic violence orders. They're called protection orders here, intervention orders. You, yeah. I don't know what they're called in Canada. but they've Yeah, been, they're simply, yeah, we have different court orders, restraining orders and yeah, those conditions. When people are at that point where it's at the place of getting the, the orders or a restraining order or there's a potential um, a charge that may be pending, people will often go back, like speaking to what you were saying, because even though it was horrible, there's comfort in the familiar, mm. right? And so, and we see this with all types of abuse and all types of maladaptive behavior. So things that we are doing that are not even necessarily good for ourselves, like over drinking or overspending, whatever we indulge in that's not necessarily good for us, is we repeat these habits and we stay locked into these ways of living because the comfort of knowing you knew what you could do. I knew I could control this, mm. which you totally had no control, but that's exactly what the story we tell ourselves, right? Because there's a lot of comfort in what's familiar and, and this unfamiliar world where he, his violence escalated, his abuse escalated after separation, that is unfamiliar and incredibly discomfortable or uncomfortable. Right. So, um, it's just what? such a huge piece of it, the the comfort and the familiar, I think. Was there a point in time or after how long or at what point in time, you know, and you could say whether it's in terms of milestones or in terms of actual time that it took, um, where you started actually then finding your, you would say, your strength to carry yourself forward? When I really started to feel like I'm okay, I'm relatively safe, and I can finally start to do what I want to do in life and focus some, some of my energy on things that I want to do was about five years after separation. You said earlier on in, in our conversation, you said today you look back at it and you, did I hear you say that you look at it as a gift? Yeah. Um, so now it's first like this, this level, then there's empowerment, then there's looking back at the whole thing and saying it was a gift. H help me reconcile that, please, because I still I don't see it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a gift because it's given me a new career path, a new focus on life. I'm sitting here with you. This is pretty incredible for me. I'm just some lady, <laughs> just some <laughs> random Australian woman who happened to go through domestic violence like millions and millions of other Australian women, and here I am with you. The gift was that uh, about five years post-separation, so around about six years ago, I started to realise that I had had privileges in escaping that violence that many, many other women and men don't have, but mainly yeah. women. Um, and that I could do something with that knowledge that I had, an intimate knowledge of the system and of the court processes and things through an unfortunate circumstance. I've had to go through it several times. Um, but I realised that I could turn that into something positive and start to help other people. So I joined a domestic violence subcommittee at my workplace at the time. And that was my first step towards what I'm doing now. I, you could never have told me six years ago that I'd be doing what I'm doing now. I now run. Were you trained? What were you trained in before? Uh, marketing communications. <laughs> I actually did. Oh, wow. I did photojournalism. That was what I wanted to be when I was young. I was a photojournalist, and I ended up doing marketing and communications. 
And, you know, um, now I run a lot of my work, not all of it. I, I'm doing a whole lot of work around sexual harassment in the workplace and things like that at the moment. But a lot you know of how to market it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. yeah, a lot of my work is running training and supporting people. So I run this bystander training through my real job, which is a job in, in government in Australia. I have a real job and that a lot of that involves this bystander training. Then I also do some contract work for a domestic violence organisation where I run specialist DV training. Now, what I bring to that and other people bring to that is actually special and unique because when you can tell people, when you can give examples from your own life, yeah. you can stand there as a happy, healthy person who's escaped this, you send a really strong message to people yeah. that they can get out of it and you have this intimate knowledge that you can help people. Now, I love my job. I love both my jobs. I it's tiring at times and it's confronting at times, but I I genuinely love what I do and I love the feeling of walking out of all of those training sessions and knowing that I might have just changed one person's mind. That's enough for me. Yeah. It's enough for me. Yeah. And I feel like I'm making a real difference to people and that is the gift that he gave me because if I'd not married him, I wouldn't have had that experience and I wouldn't have been, I would have just probably been doing some, to me and I'm not being rude to some boring comms job right this is not boring at all the other gift obviously that I got is my two beautiful amazing daughters that yeah. I've raised pretty much single-handedly and they're incredibly kind compassionate loving humans they have been through a massive journey themselves they've had obviously to go through that journey with me we've all had mm. a lot of counseling over the years and stuff but they are on these amazing career trajectories they're both doing so well career-wise but more importantly they are kind compassionate humans mm. who will not tolerate people doing the wrong thing to them or to other people and they mm. will stand up and speak out and both of them are supported friends that have gone through similar situations Good. but that, that's an immense gift it's a gift for me to have the pleasure of being their mother I was fully convinced that I was shielding my children from this while I was married I was convinced yeah. that I, I was a, I was like the brick wall there and I was helping to make sure that they didn't know that this stuff was going on nothing could be further from the truth so no they they're masterful. They pick up everything. Yeah, everything. they do. Like my daughter was yeah. years later told me how she was lying awake in her bed every night and she barely slept for years. Yeah. She was listening to what was going on in the living room. So don't don't stay in a relationship that's that's unhealthy, toxic or abusive because of the children. And you hear that all the time that people stay they in do. children. Your children do not need to learn that love is horrible and that's the message they get. You know, yeah. if, if they go to school, the school teachers will say mummy and daddy love each other or mummy and mummy love each other or whatever it is. So they think that that's love. That, it, that's, it's not okay it's, yeah. and it's not love. And we think, it's it's we amazing how many times. They hear. It's amazing how many times I've heard people say that they don't want to get married. And when I ask them, like, you know, really, that's it's a beautiful it's a beautiful thing. It's it's a, it's a it's a great experience in life. And uh, they're like, yeah, I've seen it happen. And no, I don't want to go there. 
and I, I, I didn't understand like at first because um you know again lucky for me um you know hey every family has like levels of this is the part that I want to ask and, and, and get your guidance on. And like, again, from your personal experience, so like at what point in time <laughs> draw the line between, go on, between dysfunctionality, right? Like there's dysfunction in so many things in, in relationships. Where, where do you, where do you now draw the line? And now that you do this to help others, where do you draw the line between dysfunction and abuse? Um, it's the presence of fear. Yeah. Presence of fear. Yeah. That's my line. And, and anxiety, uh, like it's this constant level of anxiety that people have. Yeah, yeah. hypervigilance. Yeah. And when you, um, part of it, I think. Yeah, fear's huge. So so that's interesting because even, even the presence of fear, um, like as you're talking, I'm thinking about my my relationship with my wife who, you know, we're married, you know, we came up on like 26 years now and me and the boys sometimes were like, hey, keep it down. You don't want to get your mom upset at, at the volume of the TV being too loud at late at night because we don't want to wake her up. You know, that's not fear. No. No, it doesn't. Well, that's my point. But like, we're afraid. We're like, we're gonna get all. We're gonna get all in trouble. We're gonna get yelled at. Um, and you know, rightfully so. Like, you know, it was too loud. But that's what I'm saying. That is fear in some ways because we're like, Shh, keep it quiet. Um, so I also want to have clarification on to to what extent, uh, uh, you know, fear, and to what extent is it respect? To what extent is it, you know, like consideration? Right. So so those are like a few different elements. Um, you know, what, what would you say to that? Well, that a relationship needs to have equality and respect. And then you don't have the presence of fear. So if you're scared that you're going to wake your wife up with the TV being too loud and you're genuinely scared, then you're you're not going to turn the TV up. That's the first thing. Um, but if you accidentally did, she would be coming out like raging at you and having power over you. If you're just scared of waking her up because you know that she's going to be a bit grumpy in the morning or come out and say, oh, could you turn that down, Mohammed? It's really annoying. That's not fear. That's that's no. a word. We we use words like it's living with people. <laughs> well, that's and what I want to clarify for, for people who are listening. Yeah, because, you yeah. know, it can be interpreted as that, right? Yeah, oh, I'm scared of what he's going to do if he finds out I haven't done the dishes. Well, you can, we oh, can all say Like you're scared that. you're going to get hit, belittled. Like it's, yeah, it's, I, an, it's an embodied I, feeling that will stop. I use, it, I use it all the time with my boys. I'm like, listen, guys, if you don't do this, we're going to get in trouble. And then I'm going to get yelled at for you guys not listening. So you guys better do this. And my wife is a sweetheart. Like if anyone meets her, she's like. Why are you throwing her under the bus I'm like not, that? I'm not throwing her under the bus. <laughs> Why don't you just tell them what to do? Because because we are like we're boys, we're busy playing, and we're like, listen, we're gonna get in trouble with mom, and so we better go. You better go do this. I wanted to clarify it to people that that's not fear, and and I want I wanted to hear you say it, Tess, because you know that's actually a form of love. Actually, <laughs> like you know, we wanna yeah. we want her to be happy. You don't want to upset someone you love. And we're yeah. like, oh man, if your mom starts, then we're gonna be you're gonna have to hear about it. You know, I I can I make a suggestion. Those conversations, <laughs> yes. I reckon, should be turned around into 
we all love mum, right? And we know that she needs to get some sleep because she has to get up early to go to work tomorrow or she needs to go to, you know, grandma's 50th birthday, whatever it happens to be, I don't know. But we all love mum, we all respect mum and we don't want mum to have a bad night's sleep, so let's keep the TV down. Yeah. So now flip it the other way around. What if it was the mom saying to the kids, careful now. You see how, and by the way, I want to bring this up because I think uh, I, I met a guy, I was telling you, Tess, the other day that who came, who I met, who wanted to take a, an office, you know, and he was starting a, a not-for-profit for men who were in domestic uh, abusive relationships. And he says it's staggering the number that's yeah. out there that, you know, you know, and, and for men, he, you know, again, he said uh, that it's even harder to deal with because gosh, like you're the, you're the one getting beaten up by your wife. There's this, you know, you talk about the element of shame and to, yeah, to there's a stigma deal with it. That, oh my God, really? You couldn't handle the situation and all of the machoisms that we got to deal with and live with. And it's even, even according to him, a harder. And he goes, the stats are just buried because as soon as you bring it up, the ones yeah. that make the rules and influence the rules are women. And they already have this kind of like hate on men so men get absolutely no support. So shout out to the guys as well who let them know, you know, and I just I, I wanted to to have you talk a little bit on that, Tess, uh, in terms of not just something that you would see being done to women, but many different types of relationships where there's abuse children. Tess, you talk, I mean, Trina, you talked about geriatric abuse and abuse on men. Can you spend some time a little just giving us like, you know, your thought on that and, and, yeah. and again, how to equate it. Because if it was, oh, gosh, don't get your dad, your father mad, immediately the uh, sometimes the image could be the guy storming down really mad. And now that's considered fear mongering from the guy when the guy does it. But how about the mom say, listen, guys, you want to have that have a good morning tomorrow? <laughs> you know, like, you yeah. know, when does that turn from, you know, guys consider, you know, your mom or your dad? to you know the presence of real you know fear and and the lack of respect uh, i i like that you use those sort of you know references there to kind of really make a, a balanced answer on it i would say this i would say it's exactly the same like for a mum and the kids doing that same thing it's the same message that you know we love dad and dad's really tired because dad's had a hard day at work so we're going to keep the tv down because we respect dad so i don't think that's any different in terms of men's experience of domestic violence and women's experience of domestic violence, it's absolutely men experience violence and they experience in high numbers just like women do. There are barriers to reporting for both genders because there's so much shame attached to it, but there are additional barriers faced by men, which are exactly the things that you said. Men are encouraged to be strong, to be tough. You don't seek help. You don't go to the doctor. You can do it all on your own, right? So you're going to see yourself also as a failure if you go and say, oh, this woman did this to me because society has built these expectations for us about what a man is and what a woman is, right? And the man is supposed to be in control, supposed to be the head of the household, supposed to be the breadwinner. So the, your female partner is not supposed to be the one that's in control. So there are those barriers to reporting that. Men and women experience violence in different ways in that both genders and, you know, to be gender inclusive, 
anyone who identifies with any gender can experience violence. And in, in fact, the rates are very, very high in our LGBTIQ plus relationships. But in terms of we're looking at men and women, we all experience those coercive and controlling and manipulative mm-hmm. behaviours, those emotional behaviours. But women are more likely, far more likely to experience lethality and hospitalisation, so that physical side of violence. So it is a different experience for us. But I think I was saying to you, Mohammed, there's a very, very few services in Australia. I'm not sure what it's like in Canada, but for men who are fleeing violence, there's all sorts of extra complications. Um, there are even issues with getting teenage boys into women's hosts. Like we have these domestic and family violence shelters and they're called women's and children's shelters. Yeah. Um, and they won't yeah. even accept, some of them won't accept boys past the age of 14 in there because they're considered yeah. to be men. So there's, there's huge structural reforms that need to take place. But um, one of those things is more support for men who are experiencing it and more support and understanding for men who are using violence in their relationships so that mm. they can feel safe and come out and talk about it and go through a behavioural change process because the other thing we know is that men who are violent towards women will go on to perpetrate that violence in multiple relationships. Mm-hmm. So until we see that behavioural change piece kick in, um, you know, we're, we're sort of... And maybe not just violence, just abuse of any kind. Yeah, when I say violence, that's what I mean. I mean... Yeah, it's, it's all of it. Yeah, it's all of it. Right. Sorry. <laughs> So, yeah. No, um, I see violence as, as everything. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, like, last thought, really, uh, Tess, uh, after after what you've been through, and you talked about there being leverage that you found and, and support that you had through people, um, I imagine that there are people out there who don't have or don't feel it that they have that support or don't know where to look, don't have that friend that you had mm-hmm. um, or your parents. Sometimes they've been that... Um, Isolated, you know, blocked, isolated, right? Mm-hmm. Is the word. What, what do you What do you say to them? Where Where could they find their power? Where do they get their leverage? Yeah, it's really hard. It's really, really hard for people. But there are a lot of support services out there for people, no matter what country or what state or what city or mm-hmm. what town you live in. Um, there are definitely support services that can help you with safety planning and things like that. I think the important thing is to make sure that you wrap support around you i was fortunate in that i already had this structure there but if you don't have that structure if you work go and talk to your workplace and what's about what supports yeah. they might have available they might be able to give you leave they might be able to facilitate moving you to a different location away from the person yeah. using the violence um there's all sorts of supports out there you know but it's important that people conduct some safety planning before they yeah. leave so don't just watch an ad on TV and think, oh, that's happening to me and that think that you'll be safe to leave. Unfortunately, yeah. as we talked about, the post-separation violence being so significant, it's really important yeah. that people have got their bank accounts in order, that they've changed their passwords. On their, their identity. <laughs> device, um, made sure that they've got copies of all their important documents, all of that yeah. sort of stuff. Um, and most websites now where you get support around domestic and family violence or intimate partner violence will have a quick escape button on them, but it's often not safe for them to use their own computer yeah. or their own phone. If they, if you can, find a friend, go to a friend. Go to a library or a friend. Yeah. yeah, go to work, tell someone you trust yeah. at work so they'll let you use an office to 
to access things, do be very careful about those devices because they're often being, um, unfortunately, being tracked. They're often, and there's a million different ways to track them. Every time I learn of one way, there's something else. Yeah. Absolutely. That they're like data mining and getting access to information. It's just, it's wild. It's something that we can barely keep up with. But yeah, it's kind of like, it takes, it, there's a lot of planning before the, the actual leaving. Yeah. There's a lot of planning. Um, yeah. it, it's 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 a daunting thing just thinking about it and and when they're there. So um, again, another anchor why they might be like ah, you know, like they, there's a give up point. Um, I, I, what do you say to somebody to not give up? You're worth more than that. Yeah, you're worth being loved. We're all deserving of love and we're all deserving of respect. I really can't stand that saying he or she earned my respect. We don't yeah. have to earn respect. Respect is a baseline, okay? We can do things that can cause disrespect, but respect is your baseline. That's your starting point. And everybody in the world deserves to be respected and loved, and nobody deserves to live with violence. Nobody asks for that to happen with them. Nobody asks mm -hmm. them to be abused. And if you've got kids, your kids deserve more too. Mm -hmm. yeah. Thank you. Thank you. That's powerful. Um, thank you. Thank you for the time, Tess. Uh, you know, despite distance, despite, despite time zones, here we are. Despite everything you've been through, here we are. Um, thank you so much for, uh, for sharing and talking through your experience. Uh, I know you might have done it a few times, but to hear you do it the way you did it with us, I, I really appreciate it. I think it's fantastic what you're doing. I, I thank you so much for inviting me to be part of it. Like I feel really, really privileged to have been invited to be part of it. The, uh, the privileged to have you. Yeah, the feeling <laughs> is very amazing. mutual. Very mutual. Yeah. Uh,